Can you see the whole time? <laughs> Me? Okay. Yeah, no, I've had vision all 34. Happy birthday oh. to you. Oh. Happy no, birthday see. to you. Happy birthday, dear my co-host Max. This Happy is a podcast birthday. about Laura Dern. You can blow out your candle. <laughs> I brought a, I bought a whole uh, bulk box of Mallow Cups, so that's your birthday cake this year. I don't know what Mallow Cups are. Um, It's like a marshmallow cream candy thing. They're like right. they're a pretty old timey. Actually, it was yeah, just, it looks like a Reese's peanut butter cup. It is a I candy of the time of our topic today. I would say mm. made in Boyertown, Pennsylvania, I believe, from 1997. Yeah, like me. <laughs> Are you from 1997? Yeah, I was wow. Born. Wait, this isn't your birthday episode. No, I was born four months before the movie we'll, we we're watching we'll came cut, out. We'll but, cut um, all this. Any reference to me is being cut out, which I understand. Today, yeah, it usually is. It was a special birthday episode for me. Max is turning, what, 40? Cups. 34, mm. along with legendary Blue-Eyed Soul singer and recent winner of the British version, version of The Masked Singer Series 2, where she was sausage, Joss Stone, also 34 today. Huh. Well, since we're... We are twins. <laughs> Since we are playing the celebrity game, let's see who else you share a birthday with. Um, mm. Holocaust survivor Primo Levi died on the day I was born. Mm. So I felt like share a bit of a passing of the torch. Share a birthday with Ethel Kennedy, the widow of RFK, Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, is she still kicking? Anton LaVey. I don't know who that is. He's a, famous a gay occult- man. He's a famous occultist. He oh. is the founder of the Church of Satan. He's oh, yeah. Do you you see pictures of him. You I know never knew podcast. that. Um, I believe Ethel Kennedy is still alive. I have a computer in front of me, so I can look. Ethel Kennedy. She is super... uh, 93 years old. Wow. Still kicking. The hate. It keeps you young. Uh, yeah, and some other people. Joel Grey. Joel Grey. He, yes, he's an old old gay theater man. He played um, the MC in the original cabaret production on stage and film. Wow. And um, lots of other stuff. He recently directed an all Yiddish uh, production of Fiddler on the Roof that was very popular among Yiddish folk. Yeah, and some other people. Is Yiddish an ethnicity? No, I would say Hasidic. A A Yiddish language. Amongst. The Jewish Production. people. I'm going to stop looking at this list because no, none of these other people are real. Yeah, no, it's a lot of... Uh, yeah, no. Anyway, so happy birthday, Max. Thank you. Now that that's behind us, we don't have to talk about it anymore. Yep. <sighs> so what now? Now we talk about a movie I made you watch for my birthday. But maybe we should start with Dern. Dern. Give her a little spotlight here. She's doing fine. She still hasn't responded to any of my emails. I haven't emailed her. But... Yeah, yeah, her daughter got, her daughter's growing up. That was something she talked about on Instagram. Uh, she saw a, what do you call it? weirder if she wasn't. <laughs> like, I was about to say Benjamin Button, and I was like, that's a different thing. It's growing down. Growing down. That's what I've been doing my whole life. Um, her daughter's growing down. Uh, she saw a peacock. She's starting a, she's, you know, hawking, like, products that are within a, within a, what color do you say, would you think Gwyneth Paltrow is? Like, if you were... You, color? Okay, hear me out. I'm going to make a joke, but I need a color to represent Gwyneth Paltrow for this joke. Rose pink. Uh, she is walking the thin rose pink line 
<laughs> between selling nor- like okay products and Gwyneth Paltrow products. It does, and and I, I think we should air this out on the pod here, in case she ever turns into. Dur- this is Laura Dern turning into just a a huckster shilling <laughs> garbage. Um, we don't condone that at all. And there are these slight little hints every now and then. You get an Instagram like, "Hey, this is a buy this herbal soap thing." But, but then she saves it by talking about her gun violence movie. Yeah, pro gun violence movie. That was a really weird turn for her. <laughs> pro gun violence. No, no, no. Dern is a lovely white lady who is liberal and is against gun Famous violence. and tall and blonde. She sure and is. And therefore may have some predilection to become a, a flim-flammer. A, a flim-flam man, if you will. A huckster. Yes. A snake oil salesman. Snake or snake oil sales. saleswoman. Sales lady. It's 2021. Call them Everybody. sales ladies. Sales, it's the future sales now. Sales people. Now, Max, I have, aside from this candy that I bought in bulk and have many of... Would you like this marshmallow cup? Um, I will take the play money, because... Okay, let me explain something to you and the listeners. These candies have existed for a long time, and they come with play money. You don't get to take um, them. I'm keeping this. The re- okay, hear me out. I've been collecting these my whole life. I don't get them very often, like, up until now. And um, I went on the site recently, and you can trade this money for things. Like, you could trade it for... You could tra- trade these points for paper money They're like or Marlboro items. Miles. Yeah. And right now, one of the things they have is a t-shirt, and I want the t-shirt. And I was like, the easiest way for me to do this is to buy a bulk box. And I averaged out all the... Pr- I did a lot of fun, cool kid math and figured out that if I bought a whole box, and on top of the points I have now, it would give me most likely enough points to get the t-shirt. So This is basically the plot of Punch, punch Drunk Love. Exactly. And um, so I, I, I'm using you through your birthday to get more points towards my scheme to get a shirt I won't wear. Yep. Or a mug. We'll see. And then all your sisters will say mean things about you and you'll fall in love. Yeah. Good movie. I actually have not seen Drunk Punch Love. Drunk Lunch Pub. It has the Sandler, the Sandman, yeah. in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a serious, subdued Sandler. Just, just like that, uh, that wedding singer. It is, that's, it is a lot like that. Yeah. I actually listened to a podcast arguing that Wedding Singer ought to be recognized as a a good piece of art for the same reasons that Punch Drunk Love is. I think, uh, this might be something I conflated, but I think the Wedding Singer is in the Criteria Collection now. I know Drunk Punch Love is, I think the Wedding Singer might also be. Punch Drunk. I don't care. It is not your birthday anymore. As soon as you finish that candy, your birthday is done. Taking my sweet time. It'll be like that thing with Homer and the donut, and if he finishes the donut, he get the devil gets his soul. <laughs> so he just has daddy's soul donut sitting in the fridge, and he just eats it anyway. <sighs> so I, where I was going with this story was, besides this, I have another surprise for you. Um, you would you like it now, or would you like it at the end? It is Yo, hit me. Entirely your call. Alrighty. The anticipation um, is killing So me. this involves a little audio. I'm going to turn my computer to you and play it on loud, and if... If the audio is messed up, I will just cut the audio and put it into this recording later. If not, you'll just hear Max's live reactions to this thing. This is fun. Put my notes on the ground. Turn this around. I think you are going to be thrilled. This is going to take about five minutes, though, so buckle up. I'm so excited. Um, yes, if you wouldn't mind just 
shifting your computer a little bit. Ready? Hopefully this works. Max! Hey! It's just me, Paula Poundstone, wishing you a happy birthday on behalf of, well, me, Paula Poundstone, but also, and more importantly, on behalf of Nicholas. He told me that you guys, you guys are co-hosts of a podcast called, d- 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 what was it, Dern After Reading, all about Laura Dern films. That is so specific. And it's not even just one person talking about Laura Dern films. It's two people talking about Laura Dern films. I love Laura Dern, by the way. I met her once. In fact, I think I've met her a couple times. She was so nice. She was really nice. Um, yeah, I think I've met her a couple times. Um, but I tried to get her on my podcast, which is Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. And, uh, good plug. Sure Gotta throw that plug in. In fact, maybe they didn't even get back to me. There's a possibility that they didn't even get back to me because I think I went through her people. You know, I don't have. It's not like I have her home address, for heaven's sakes. It's not like I have her phone number. It's not like I just call her up. Hey, Lord, it's me, Paula. You remember. We met a couple of times, of course. Of course, of course. Loved you and Matt. She has a very large Loved cat. Loved you and your It's really oh, good. Oh, my gosh. Good talking to you. Um, oh, I just, I know. I know the other thing. I loved her. Laura, Paula again. <laughs> Loved you and Ramblin' Rose. I have it on laser disc. I do. <laughs> I did love her in Ramblin' Rose. It was a good movie, and her mom was in it too. Uh, this is true. And she was also quite brilliant in it. In fact, her mother was nominated for best supporting actress in that movie, and may have gotten best supporting actress. I can't remember anymore, but um, she was great. And her mother's very nice. Yeah. Whole family's a very, very nice. Well, her father killed John Wayne. Oh, that, you know what? They don't talk about that. That's, you can't even bring that up on the phone. Laura, Paul Wellstone calling again. Yeah, how you doing? Good talking to you. I was wondering if you could do my podcast. Nobody listens to Paul Poundstone. Oh, okay. All right. That's fine. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be a time uh, when you're, Available. Uh, by the way, how's your dad? No, you remember. Your dad? The one who killed John Wayne? Uh, hello? Hello? Uh, oh, yeah. You can't even bring that up with them. The whole family's like really touchy about that. Um, that was a great movie. She wasn't in it, but it was uh, John Wayne and the Cowboys. Oh, my gosh. That's a good movie. It's a really good movie. In fact... Oh, damn it. I always forget this guy's name when I go to remember. Roscoe Lee Brown. Roscoe Lee Brown, who played the cook um, in John Wayne and the Cowboys. And he was also the narrator in the movie Babe. Um, kind of great Ooh, voice. That'll come um, up later. I met him at a party once. And then I invited him to a party at my house. And... Um, he, uh, I, I asked him because at the party that I met him at, he read this really funny thing, which was the, um, uh, the, the letters exchanged between the sender and the recipient of the 
12 days of Christmas, Christmas presents. And it's such a funny thing. And he read it so brilliantly that I asked him to come to my party and read it. And he did. And he couldn't have been more lovely. And he told us all about working with John Wayne. Um, I mean, boy, nobody said a word about Laura Dern's dad because <laughs> in case I come back to the Dern's. You don't want to say it. You probably don't even bring it up on your on your podcast. During That's this true. after reading. Is that what it was? Dern after reading, not during this. Dern after reading. Oh my gosh. It's a clever play on words. I'm I'm not fast enough for a clever play on words. <laughs> Alright, look, Max. It's been so nice talking to you. And I do hope you have a wonderful birthday. Although I'll be honest with you, Max. I don't usually wish people a happy birthday, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't think that's how happiness works. I don't think people are happy for a whole day. And, and, and when you say it, it just sort of sets them up for disappointment. As far as I know, and I'm not a brain scientist, but I've interviewed brain scientists on my podcast. <laughs> you know, the one that Laura Dern... Well, come on. Um, I've interviewed a brain scientist before, and I've read a couple books on the topic. And what I was told, what I think I know, is that uh, happiness is a biochemical process. And there's a theory that when we do something that's good for the survival of our species, we get... Uh, a happy chemical release in our brains. But it's a hit. It's like a, a, it's a, it's like a hit of a happy chemical. Oxytocin, I believe it's called. It, 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 it's not a fire hose. It doesn't flood the brain. It doesn't last all day. It, it, it's, it's seconds and minutes and hours if you're lucky, Max. So here's what I wish for you. I wish that in the years and years and years that you have to come, that the seconds and minutes and hours that make up those days and months and weeks that fill those years are happier and happier as time goes by. Aww. Ah, fuck it. Happy birthday, Max. <laughs> Ah, that's maybe the best birthday present I've ever gotten. I'll, I'll send that to you, but thank you very much to our own Rambling Rose, Paula Poundstone, for this <laughs> lovely birthday wish. Uh, everyone go listen to Paula Poundstone's podcast. I was going to say, if you, if you missed it in there, it's called uh, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Lovely lady. Lovely oh, lady. man. That was, when I first watched it, I was so enamored with the entire thing. It was perfect. Like, I feel like most cameos, you're not getting that much time. Oh, no, I mean... That was well over five minutes. Oh, yeah. But for the money, I would say Paula Poundstone's your best bet. Yep. Even better if the person has no idea who Paula Poundstone is. Yeah. Fortunately, we are not in that situation, but yeah. Well, that was fun. And she looks great. She does. And I love her giant cutouts of Ricky and Lucy in the background. Mm-hmm. And every every one she has, it starts with just, just those. Just Ricky and Lucy. So every example on her page is just Ricky and Lucy, Ricky and Lucy, <laughs> Ricky and Lucy. It's good. Ah, well. Thank you. That's it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the birthday special. 
No, no. We have no. a movie to talk about. We do. That was exciting. I'm all we excited do. Now. And I love Ooh. this movie. Does, does this movie star Paula Poundstone by chance? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the blonde, the femme fatale. A lot yes. of people don't know this. That's Paula Poundstone. That's Paula Poundstone. Now, the movie is <sighs> 1997's. Best Picture nominee. In fact, it was nominated for like 10 Oscars. That sounds about right. But was not as many as Titanic, which just... uh, 1997 Academy Award. Have you... It's LA Confidential. Sorry, I don't mean to... I don't mean to break up your intro already, but have you ever met somebody that was like... Took a lot of pride in the fact that they never saw a very popular movie? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, that's all. I just used to know somebody that was like, I've never seen Titanic, I'm, and I'm never going to. And I was like, I mean, it's a cool movie. And they were like, not going to see it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> You'd probably like I it. Like, it's fun. I don't know. It's it's pretty good. Oh, it's got uh, Victor Garber in it. Great I, guy. Where did I get Leo from? Leo? I mean, Leo's in it. Uh, Victor Garber is just also in it as a lesser character. I don't know Victor Garber is. He's a great guy. He's in Titanic. Anyway, so, <laughs> I'm sorry. So I was four months old when this movie came out, so I didn't see it until now. That I'm 24. 23. Almost 24. Yeah, we'll get there. Stop trying to make this <laughs> about you. I'm going to make this about me if it kills me. So, man. I get, we, open on, we open on the place I think every movie should open. Danny DeVito describing L.A. in the... 40s? Technically, early 50s. Okay, 50s. But it feels like 40s. Feels... It's a neo-noir. And I I like how it begins, because it's like, just, it's all this footage, like, of, like, prosperity and, like, the glitz and the glamour, and Danny DeVito is just describing all of this very positively, like, come here, you could get discovered, every man can afford a house, yada, yada, yada. And then there's a turn, and he's like, there's trouble in paradise, which is a great noir sentence. And then he just talks about how, like, the, the gritty underbelly, the corrupt cops, just all this stuff is happening under the surface. That everyone like sees in the papers, and it's whew, in fact great it has start. my favorite line from this voiceover it says something must be done, but nothing too original. Remember, this is Hollywood. <laughs> there are some great lines I wrote down throughout this whole film. I am a big fan. I'm also a fan of how like it's not all fictional people. Like we, op- I mean, within the first five minutes, like we are introduced to Mickey Cohen as being like a big contributor to the trouble in the rest of the film. And, like, there's just scenes here and there where, like, you see people that are obviously facsimiles of actual things. Yeah. Like, there's a, we'll there's a Shirley Temple at one point. Like, you know it's her, but it's not her, but oh, it there is. there is? Yeah. She's at, like, one of the Hollywood parties, like, sitting on an older, older, like, a very, <sighs> like, a queer gentleman's lap, and he's just, like, fawning over her. I don't know. Lots of stuff like that. This movie was fantastic. But, Max, I will let you go. Oh, man. Where do we even start? L.A. on... You you lived in L.A. You were born there, correct? I was born there. So do you think that L.A. Christmas from the opening is fair? Like, just no snow and then, like, those plastic kind of, like, janky Christmas decorations? Not janky, but, like... Yeah. I just... I yeah. love that imagery It's, it's of, interesting like, doing Christmas, Christmas in in a place with palm trees and shit. A nice warm weather, 70-degree Christmas. Yeah, it has that vibe. I lust after this like that old 50s hollywood and especially like a time when like classic christmas music just was christmas music like i don't like that pentatonic stuff and all those new like hip-hoppy things like if if i could just hear like bing and like all those songs that are in this movie and like 
that look of everything's like so uh, yeah doesn't christmas in the 50s seem really nice it does except for unless you're a mexican-american racism and Ooh, do you know that? So that let's start there, yes. Because that's what kind of the first plot action we mm-hmm. get. Most of our characters, our main characters, are members of the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, <laughs> a group that can do no wrong yes. historically. <laughs> the heroes of our town. Uh, too bad. Too bad. Personal camcorders were invented. <laughs> if not for that, they'd still be on the. And run. so we have a loosely fictionalized account of. The Bloody Christmas event, which occurred in 1951, and the LAPD had a... There were lots of ongoing issues with the community's Mexican-Americans. I learned a bit. There were... They were perceived as anti-American during World War II for wearing zoot suits, which are large-fitting suits, because they use too much fabric and therefore are bad for, like, a rationing war effort type thing. That Which that, sounds like such just, like, yeah, a thinly-veiled, oh, I'm just racist. That's grasping for straws. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what happened was a bunch of cops show up. For a call, there are some Mexicans or Mexican-Americans who are allegedly underage, drinking, at a bar. Cops show up. None of them are underage. They prove this. The cops are still like, all right, you guys got to go. They're being assholes. Fight breaks out. They, they fight some cops. Some cops get roughed up a bit. Seven uh, of these civilians get arrested. Then, and this is basically as it occurs in the film... The LAPD is having a Christmas party. And if you know anything about cops and alcohol, let me tell you. Ugh, man. They, they just can't get enough of this stuff. I don't know it. where we got donuts from. <laughs> Those Irishmen, they it's love a, a drink. It's hooch. They're, they're real hooch hounds. And so cops are all hammered. And these seven Mexican-Americans get, uh, get booked so cops, one after the other, just beat the shit out of these guys. I'm amazed that no one died. It was something like 80 police officers, like, each taken swings. And then what happened in real life was, oh, then suddenly they all, like, a, the Mexican community fought tooth and nail to make this a story. They were trying to hide it. Eventually it came out. All the cops, oh, I don't remember what, I, I was drunk, I didn't see who did what. Yeah, okay, right, there. it's disgusting. Yeah. And in, and that's as it occurs in this movie, which kind of kicks off the, the plot lines for, for our main characters. So perhaps we should introduce them. Well, um, something I would like to bring up just before we get to that, because it kind of goes back to the Bloody Sunday. I don't know if Bloody you... Christmas. I don't care. Um, yeah, that's the Irish. Bloody Christmas. You too. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but one of the cops... I, I'm only bringing this up now because I... Christmas, bloody Christmas. I don't notice him any later point, but I'm sure he's in it. One of the cops is played by David Morse. You may recognize him as the very short, short white-haired guard from The Green Mile, a movie that also starred a Mr. James Cromwell. Oh. So there are two people from The Green Mile in this movie. Wow. But James Cromwell plays a monster in this one. I did just hear a compelling t- take that The Green Mile's 
kind of dog shit paternalist authoritarian i mean yeah it's not a great movie i would rather watch the shawshank redemption black what's the trope i mean like a mystical yeah yeah like it's got it all it's got it all and and this movie has they fry a a mentally challenged guy and a native american it it's not a great movie really and i'll offer this movie is not one that you know i have probably more issues with the LAPD writ large than this movie offers. So I I welcome any critiques of what is portrayed here, but it's not, not like the, the green mile in the same way. Oh yeah. No, it's a very different movie. Watching it again. I was a bit, it'd been years since I saw this and I was a little worried. Like, Oh, is it going to be like pro cop? Am I going to like, is my moral compass going to have issues with this movie? No. Yeah, I mean, I once the movie starts picking up, I really was... It was interesting seeing it in a time now where, like, you know, there's a massive trial against a cop who did something wrong and it's very public. Seeing, like, cops just getting away with all this stuff and, like, doing it. And, like, they could. Because it was the 50s and Los Angeles. Or the 80s or the 90s or usually today. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, Yeah. So this movie is really about... The stories of three different police officers. Yes. First, we have Ed Exley. He is the by the books desk cop. He is. He's a good boy. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get into the perversion, the the um, buying out of the police. He is like fresh from the academy and wants to do everything exactly by the book. Yes, they call him College Boy. He is. He's, I don't know if you catch it, he's wearing a Rolex. Like, he's yeah. hes the rich kid, young guy, who shows up and wants to just do it by the book. And is very smart and very driven. He just wants to wear his glasses and do his job right. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the glasses. Good, good, I'm glad. And played by Guy Pierce. You know... When he first... For the first, like, ten minutes of the movie, I was like, he looks so familiar... And then I was like, wait a minute, was he in Cape Fear? <laughs> he kind, he looks, I think, pretty passably like um, Nick Nolte in Cape Fear. Okay. Because Nick Nolte's like very clean cut yeah, glasses. Yeah. Like, he has the same exact look. And I was just like, no, that can't be him. Yeah. That can't no, be him. I know him as the bad guy in Count of Monte Cristo. Or Memento in Memento. Oh, me- yes, he plays Mr. Memento. <laughs> Mr. Memento. That is correct. Uh, in this, I, I did learn a fun fact. Ooh. He They capped his teeth because huh. his teeth are like all British and mangly or whatever. Well. Um, and to make him just be a part of that like bureaucratic, clean cut guy. And you can see it. It's like, oh, his teeth are like razor straight. Huh. They, he did, did have a heck of a set of teeth. He did. Good to know they were bought by the studio. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Ed Exley. Yes. Then we have um, Bud White. Played by a still skinny Russell Crowe. Skinny's a stretch. Well, He's a have you seen man. him lately, though? He really no. beefed up, like, in the last few years. And then I think he got skinny again, like, this year for a role or something. Interesting. Yeah, he... It's interesting, because you can tell he's substantially younger. Yes. But he still looks old. He still looks like he could be 45. It's like his eyes. He has old eyes. Yeah. And he just looks like a ghostly, like, Victorian man-ghost kind of deal. And do you want to describe Bud White for the people? Um, I'd say he is not afraid to bend the rules. Um, he super doesn't like when women get beat up. To a... To, to, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't say to a fall, but, like, he is, like... 
he's very much on the side of like women's rights as far as like not getting their asses kicked, which is yes. cool and neat to see because you know that's not a thing you think of mostly with cops. Yeah, you think of him like <laughs> usually they're usually they're rage doing when it, it comes to <laughs> violence towards women is inflicted on the women. Yeah, but yeah, I I mean you know, and he seems seems a little wayward, but he definitely like wants what's right. Yeah, he seems in some he's kind of like a a big galoot. I'd say, like, he's kind yeah, of... like, everyone thinks he's He's the dumb. muscle, he's... Yeah, he's... He thinks he's dumb. I think he, he's definitely okay with, like, turning a blind eye to a lot of stuff, because, like, in the beginning, his partner is just, like, a drunk, like, a bigger drunk guy cop who, like, obviously, like, isn't fit or, like, doing the work. He's yes. clearly doing all the, the physical stuff. The heroin running? Oh, yeah. we'll get there. <laughs> you don't actually run. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so when we meet Bud White is... Uh, a domestic dispute call. We see a man hitting a woman or getting violent and confrontational with a woman through a window. And Russell Crowe comes out of the the cop car, like... Tears um, lights off the roof, like pulls down the decorations, gets the guy on the lawn, kicks his ass. And then handcuffs him to the rail. And then his partner... Comes out of the cop car, like <laughs> holding a bottle, holding like, a flask, swaying around. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah. Which he felt like the most archetypical cop is his partner. Not to bring up King of the Hill again. It's what we do here. again, just historically. He gave me big like Buck Strickland vibes. Buck just, Strickland, is he's dead? he's Hank's boss, like the oh, big, the, like, the guy that runs. Yeah, like just like he's very powerful. He could just kind of do whatever he wants. That kind of deal and, like, very confident. Yeah. Confident without cause. And then we have a, a third police officer. We have Sergeant Jacobinson. Uh. And <laughs> played by... Famous Ke- monster Kevin Famous Spacey. monster Kevin Spacey. And just so you know, in some movies, right, I maybe you don't want to, like, relate someone's personal life... The plot around Jack Vincennes, we can't help but bring it up. Oh, we'll yeah. get there. I mean, I've, he's I feel the like... good. He's the fake good guy in the in the real life story where he's the bad guy. But we'll yeah. get. There. He's like, oh, he's kind of gay rights in this movie, which is neat. Yeah, but knowing he's, knowing he's everything like, about him as a real person, it gets he <laughs> actively protects and fights for. Gay man in Hollywood, which young, is a, a young gay man in Hollywood, which is the opposite. It's an interesting, interesting thing to think of that that had to be a thing at some point. Like you know, Hollywood is where gay people go, even back then, and like there had to be some kind of like connection to the law and all that. Of course. Like there were definitely cops that were fighting for them, which is just interesting. I to don't think, about. think there Maybe, were that but many. Like, you know, there like there had to be some guys on the in- yeah, some some ga- gals on the inside rather. but jack vincennes at least at the beginning of the film wouldn't identify as any of these things oh, he yeah. would identify as a he's almost a celebrity cop that's the vibe i was he getting is, for sure there is a a popular tv show called badge of honor that is like based off of him in this is all in the movie i don't think that's a real show but it's yeah. definitely like real shows I was get. I didn't. I don't think you actually like. I don't think it is said or like visually admitted that he is a cop until the pot bust at the beginning. Like well, when he's just his dancing name with pops that up woman. And says Sergeant Jack Sons. Oh, I didn't see that. Where was that? Oh yeah. Well, whatever, man. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, 
He's classy, he's charming, yeah, he wears, he's like, popular. a white suit with a black shirt. He's, like, he's living like a king. He's comfortable and happy and, like, supervises the... He's, like, the... He has a role on this show. Yes. And he's, like, a big swinging dick. And he's using it to, like, pick up women. And he's... He's that guy. He's, like, wildly successful. And he is friends with Danny DeVito, who we find out is a... Hot, hot, uh, what would you call it? Trash rag writer. Yes. He writes a tabloid called Hush Hush. Hush. He kind of, he bribes Kevin Spacey to give him, like, the good deals, the good stories, like a scoop, get pictures before the cops come in, all that stuff. Yeah. And this is based off of, um, a real, one of the first kind of trash Hollywood tabloids called Confidential. Could that be where the name of this film originated? Hush Hush. And (laughs) there's no way that, like, reading old confidential articles about how someone's secretly a gay communist, like, are as well-written as anything we get Danny DeVito. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, have you ever read Hollywood Babylon? No. I'll give it to you sometime. It's basically a, a trash rag of a book. It's made by Kenneth Anger, and it's, like, just every, like back alley conspiracy story about early Hollywood. Like, how this person died. There's a whole chapter about um, uh, the fat guy that killed the young lady. Um, Patty Arbuckle. Patty Arbuckle. And just, like, all that stuff. And it's not well written. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's trash. Yeah, no, this is... So this is the first tabloid, like, basically the first big Hollywood tabloid. This Here's a fun fact from Confidential, mm-hmm. which I'm sure if you did a deep dive, you could find so much salacious garbage. But... Frank Sinatra threatened to sue Confidential for their story, which was titled Open Letter to General Mills. Here's why Frank Sinatra is the Tarzan of the Boudoir. And it was about how Wheaties allegedly enhanced Frank Sinatra's sex life. Interesting. That's weird because, like, the whole cornflake thing... Are you familiar with that? Uh, isn't like, that so you'd stop masturbating? Basically, yeah. Like, cornflakes would cut your libido, and you wouldn't feel a need to um, abuse your body. Yeah. It's weird that they turned I'm surprised out... General Mills didn't sue Confidential. Right? It's like from the 20s to the 50s, there was a complete turnaround, and cereal made you a horny devil. Made you an athlete in the bedroom, baby. Hmm. Gotta get your Wheaties. <laughs> that was a good... That was good. You reading? You're good. I was just looking at some uh, trivia facts. It's it's been a while since I've done the uh, IMDb trivia page. I forgot about it. You know how many people were killed in the movie? In LA Confidential. Yes, it's a nice round number. Like on camera. Yeah. Like how many characters were killed? How many actors were yes. killed? How many actors were actually killed? Ten. Thirty. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, I mean. You, you th- I think we both know the place where... Which you may not suspect for most of this movie. This oh, yeah. movie is not, like, most of it is not a fast-paced action movie. It is more in line of, like, a police procedural yeah, I mean, it's kind mostly, of detective It's just, work. like, cops doing cop things, and then everything, like, turns then, crazy in the last quarter. And even before then, when it when it has action moments, they are viscerally violent. Oh, yes. I mean... And so, alright, so we've got these three characters. So, Bloody Christmas. Let's bring it back to the story here. Mm -hmm. So the Bloody Christmas occurs. Now, Ed Exley, Mr. Clean Teeth Glasses, who just wants nothing more than to, like, be top dog, 
Um, oh, I don't think I mentioned his father was a police higher up. Yes, of some he's like kind. A chief, the chief or something. Yeah, or, big and time. He died in the line of duty. Yes, and so Guy Pierce, being kind of having his moral compass, where he wants good, he believes in like fighting against injustice as a police officer, which mm-hmm. I do think a lot of police officers that's what attracts them to the work. Um, and is very much a career opportunist at the same time. So he has no problem when all the cops beat up all these Mexican-Americans. He has zero problem basically rolling on all of them. So he he testifies against his fellow officers. And one of them, um, Bud White's drunk partner, gets mm-hmm. fired. Yes. And one of them, Sergeant Jack Vincennes, Kevin Spacey himself, gets demoted or he gets moved to Vice. Yeah, and they like tell him he can't work on the show for a while. Just yeah. like, you know, a, more of a jab at him personally than like a actual punishment. Yeah. And so Ed actually is no longer, he wasn't well liked before. He's a dork ass. <laughs> there is such like a, like a, what I feel like is probably real in cop culture, like just the bullying mentality, like when the when the big when the drunk dude is like leaving the office, he just got canned, and he's walking by Ed Exley, he slams his like desk Fox box down, he goes like "Sorry, Sergeant," and walks out. And yep. like, good God, this is literally high school. Yeah, <laughs> like jocks versus nerds. Yeah, except that man will try to murder. Yeah, you that man has if, a gun if given the opportunity. Uh, and then, what would a neo noir film be without a femme fatale? Of course. And who is our femme fatale, Nicholas? Oh, I forget her name, her real name. Her name is Lynn Brackett. There we go. And of course, by... we meet her at the liquor store, where you meet all the femme fatales. Yes. In like a, in like a <gasps> Mike Tyson pre-fight. A holy <laughs> black outfit, including gloves. It looks... On Christmas Eve, which is a choice. Yes. It's like what Floyd Mayweather wears before his fight. Every day. <laughs> uh, it's Kim Basinger. And... She's in this robe. Russell Crowe is in the liquor store and sees this robed woman. And it's sort of this reveal moment where he like, there's clearly an allure, but you don't yet have a good look at her. You can see kind of this blonde hair poking out. And if anyone's familiar with the film, probably the first thing you think of is like, oh, the blonde woman. Like it was very much the centerpiece of the marketing materials. And she is stunning. She is she looks oh, those eyes. Elizabeth Grinali. Grinali, yes. Is that right? Kim Basinger's? Oh, no. No, it's Kim Sorry, Basinger. I was... I'm not Who? good with... I can't know every celebrity. I know most Alec of them. Alec Baldwin's It's not Laura Dern? Why are we talking about her? Yeah. Huh? Come on. Uh, so, Bud White sees this woman, and she kind of turns and has these striking blonde hair, gorgeous blue eyes. And she looks like a real actress, Veronica Lake. Yes. And Veronica Lake, who those of our younger audience may not know directly, but may know as one of the models specifically around the the hair, the peekaboo haircut, as it was called, where you have sort of the waves poking in front of your eye, of Jessica Rabbit. Uh-huh. It was very much made off of was designed based off of Veronica Lake, and that's who Kim Basinger. 
happens to look like. Coincidentally? Not coincidentally? I don't know. Who's to say? Perhaps we should dig deeper. Who did frame Roger Rabbit is the real question. Um, I think one of these cops, probably. I mean, yeah. Yeah. If, <laughs> if this movie is any indication. And of course, after we meet this young lady, she then walks out to a car, which has a character that I enjoyed very much, Pierce, in it. Pierce? Patrick. Of course, at this point, he says like three words. He's like, see what he wants. And there's another woman in the back seat with a busted up face. The driver, an ex-cop, I think his name was Buzz, something Buzz. They have him and Russell have a little confrontation. And it just, I feel like it opens, like that interaction kind of leads to the rest of the movie, if that makes sense. Like all of those characters come back in different ways. Yes. And I feel like that happens several times in this movie. And I'm very <laughs> More than like one that. of them in a body bag. That is true. Huh. <sighs> Where next? So, yeah, this is tough. So we've got, let's see, we got Bloody Christmas. That's yes. occurred. We got Bud White. He's, he is now in, enthralled by this woman that he just saw. And she pegs him for a cop. He's oh, like, she pegs him, all right. He says, Merry Christmas. She looks, she says, Merry Christmas to you, officer. And he's not in wearing a police uniform. As, as she says, vibes. it's written all over his face. Which yes. is true. He has big cop face in this. He does. So, we've got... So now... I guess, then, then let's... We have the first kind of... The first murder. And yes. that is a shootout in a diner. A beautiful diner. A gorgeous... I would kill to eat there right now. It's called the Night Owl. Nick would have also killed I, to eat yes, at this diner. I would have killed the, sh- the cook, too. Oh, man, this place is just, like, straight out of a Tom Waits song, like, the looks of it. And then you get It looks in... like the, the Edward Hopper painting. True. Nighthawks at the diner. Isn't it? Yeah, Nighthawks. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, we... we I think I, all the other detectives are like, you're an idiot, like, I hate you, and they leave. And then there's a call, like, hey, homicide, and Ed Exley gets it, he runs down there. He goes in, he wants it as his case. He sees, like, one, like, he sees the cook with a gun dead, he sees the cash register is empty, and he's like, okay, this all checks out. Then he follows some blood, and then he gets to the bathroom, and there's a there's pile like of corpses. There's, like, six corpses just piled up, like, I all mean, bloody in a bathroom. I feel like you're never ready to see a pile of corpses, but, like, I was... Yeah, taken this aback. Is the first of several jarring, violent moments in this film. Oh, I mean, yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> it's just how it goes sometimes. It's Los Angeles, baby. And so they immediately blame it on black teenagers. Yep. <laughs> yep. Sorry, that's... I didn't mean to jump the gun. No, no, no. Like, why beat around the bush? It was def- we all knew it was going to happen. It was definitely anyway. like a John Benet Ramsey kind of moment. Like, it, it was. I think they were Asian. The men were Asian. But, of course not. And, um, yeah, so they, now all the cops, they get leads on some people on a car, and all the cops kind of are breaking off into pairs and chasing these leads. These young, oh, these are young black criminals, they all have rap sheets, they're our lead suspects. They, and two of them, oh, it's uh, Kevin Spacey, it's Jack Vincennes and Ed Exley. Yes, they go and, like, get, a, I think, a local boxer, and he, like, sort of rats on somebody, and that leads them to essentially who they're looking for. When they get there, there's two other cops who we later find out are planting guns in the car, but yes. are there, and it's this, like, 
They find the car, and yes. look, wouldn't you know it? They found weapons that perfectly I, matched the scene. I think, now that I think about it, it did look like he was putting them in and not taking them out when they find them. Oh, dude, like does he, it? Like, I, you can literally see him kind like of... Like, we don't find out till later that's what they were doing, but it does yeah. seem like they're kind of, like, they're, 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 it's like an Easter basket. They're so nicely laid out in the yeah. back, and there's, like, money. And... Yep, exactly. <sighs> um, so, they think they've got the suspects oh yeah i mean it's perfectly set up they're there there's one way into the apartment and then they go and it's something that i feel was very telling of the time is i was it kevin one of the let's say good guys says don't kill them when they go in because the one guy he he throws up his shotgun and fires in the air because he almost just killed one of the dudes on the couch right because we find out later the plan was to kill them right there was to kill them have dead bodies and just be scot-free crime is solved yes uh, yep, it was definitely these guys. Yep, it was definitely Take these our word for people it. People of color in Los Angeles in 1950. Yeah. And so what happens when they do go in? When they go to to arrest these guys? Oh, wait, no. I'm, I'm getting ahead of you myself. You are getting... They, they do it. I mean... They do you, arrest these guys. You can tell guys. the guys that were there earlier were very antsy to shoot, and the other guys were like, we need them alive. So they brought them in, and then um, Ed Eggsley does... One of the best interrogation scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie. Ooh. He said, he basically, he looked at, earlier in the movie, I'm um, James Cromwell, the captain. He's like, you're not a real cop. You can't, you don't have the guts. You don't have the metal to do this. And then like, he is becoming more of a like real in quotations cop and willing to bend rules and like be tough and like hurt people basically. So when James Cromwell is like, we need someone to interrogate these people, he steps up and he's like, I'm going to break them. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because James Cromwell, a guy from Babe. <laughs> Mr. Babe. Mr. Babe. Man, what happened to him that he left the farm? Oh, shit. Babe even takes place in England, so this kind of makes sense that that is the same character. That an Irishman... An Irishman was done raising pigs, and he went to L.A. to be a cop. To be the L.A. police chief. He still has a little piggy. <laughs> yeah, and so he... He tells Ed Exley... He's, and he gets at sort of one of the themes here, is that, like, James Cromwell is like, Oh, would you ever, would you ever plant evidence on someone you know to be guilty? And it's like, would you ever basically justify these, right, something you might view as corrupt, but we view as a necessary justification? If you know these young black men are criminals, then what's the harm in framing them for murder? And, and we see that through Ed Exley's character where he's going to wrestle with that in a few different ways. Because James Cromwell's basically like, you can't. Like, you pretty boy coming from college boy. Like, you can't. No, you don't have what it takes. It's like, would you shoot someone in the back um, if you knew they'd get away with it? If you didn't, oh, we'll get there. Oh, I just, I don't think that really clicked because it's yeah. said so early and then the yeah. result is so much later. We'll get there, but oh, damn. Yeah. That's good. Oh, this movie's great. And so, help me out, because you just watched. I sure did. So many different... So then... So we have the interrogation scene. Yes. And basically, he interrogates, like, I would say the lead guy. He's, like, he's the dude that was ratted out originally. He, like, kills dogs. He steals cars. He has a rap sheet, all that stuff. 
and he basically gets him to flip on his friend by calling him gay. And what, right when he flips, he hits the buzzer, so it's being piped into so the next his room. his friend who's in the other interrogation room hears this guy rolling on him. Oh, and it is. And then he, uh, he goes over there, and then he gets more information. From the other guy. But yeah. we also know... We, fi- we find out very soon after that they weren't talking about the same crime. Because yeah. these guys c- did commit a crime, just they didn't commit the night owl crime. Yes. Because we go to their apartment and they're holding a woman, just like captive, raping her, etc. Yeah, so a naked woman tied to the bed. And this is another very suddenly, very visceral uh, like image. Yes. And Russell Crowe like is the one that goes Bloody and naked... And of yeah. course, you know, he super hates abusive women, so when he goes into the other room and sees the guy, the one guy who's still in the apartment, he just shoots him right there, and then plants a gun on him and yes, shoots the and door shoots frame. shoots the door frame, right? So Russell Crowe has zero problem yeah. doing that. Russell Crowe will do what it takes to be a cop. And absolutely, right, he's not going to lose any sleep over that. And, like, this one's tough, because, like, he is doing the wrong thing, but he's doing it specifically because it supports, like, the one thing he's super against. So that's, like, such a tough thing to deal with. But there. at the same time, it's like, oh, well, maybe arrest that person. Yeah, and then I mean... prosecute them through a court of law, as per what you're supposed to do. And, like, from here, Russell Crowe, he goes, um... Do you want to get into the Jane Doe a little? Sure. Yeah. So he does some bouncing around because one of the women found is the woman from the car with the broken up face. Yes, was killed in the night owl. And first he goes to Pierce, who was like associated, and they, they have a little talk and we kind of figure out that he has been bringing in these beautiful women and having them get plastic surgery to look like stars. So he'll have like like his girl, let's say Cammy, is his Marilyn Monroe and yes. like so on and so and forth. And there are high-end yes. escorts. They are escorts, and he, like, runs kind of a pornography ring and, like, has lavish yes, he's, parties. like, a big... He's, like... I don't know if he is a producer or if he's just, like, I a think Hollywood at one producer. point they say he, like, he produces B-movies under the table and oh, stuff yeah, like that. that's right. Yeah, he lives... He's got a mansion in the hills, and... And he's, like... He's the devil. Like, he is that, like, a Hollywood devil who just, like, does all the dirty stuff to get by, but, like, somebody has to. Yeah, so and he's very fun. charming and fun. At, at one point, um, Russell Crowe says, like, after he figures out, like, oh, his... Okay, so the mother couldn't identify her originally because the she mother. Well, she's a she's a treat, but she couldn't identify her daughter because she had plastic surgery. And then when he's talking to Pierce, Pierce is like, "I give them surgery so they can look different." And he says, "Jesus fucking Christ!" And Pierce says, "No, Pierce Pierce Patrick Pierce Patrick Morgan or whatever his name is." And I was like, "Ooh, that's slick. That's real <laughs> slick." And then uh, he goes to his femme fatale's house because he knows that's the next step. And there's this man there is being real pushy. He's like, "Well, what does this fellow want?" And the Russell holds up his badge and says, get the fuck out of here. And then the guy is like, he suddenly changes very quickly and like just gathers his stuff and leaves quietly. Yeah, and he, says he, says, like, Thank he you. says officer and then Russell Crowe says councilman. <laughs> oh, that's Which, right. I, that really stuck out. That, that was a good a lovely one. catch. It was yeah, like so, two, two very good hits, like sly stuff. Right so Bud White, Russell Crowe goes to Lynn Brackett because she looks like a movie star, right? That's kind of his only lead. Um, and suspect she might be involved with this. Yes. And uh, then we find out suddenly that the Night Owl criminals have escaped through an, through an, a window that was left open mysteriously. Mm-hmm. That's probably that's probably all that's there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. of course. And of course, they get literally blown away in the next scene. 
Yeah. Which, what do you tell us about that? They were, they figured out where they were and they like, they broke in, uh, what's his face? Who's the good cop? What's his name again? Exley? Ed Exley. Ed Exley. I keep, I keep in my head mixing up his actual name and like his movie name and I just don't want to, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so Exley comes in, he has a shotgun, like this seems to be his first like big but like he did the bust originally of them, but like this is like more of a high stakes one. Yeah, because and, they're like <clears throat> they're fugitives, and they and... they go in like everyone's still. They have the guns on them. The guys are sitting there, and one of them knocks over a bottle, and it's like very Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. like that scene uh, where just yeah. everything drops like chaos. And of course, I think one of the cops gets shot. He Ed Eggs like shoots at least three people, and he is deemed a hero after this. And I I want to talk about this moment yeah. where he won the last the last fugitive standing basically flees and runs into an elevator and ed exley follows with a shotgun and as the elevator door is closing he sticks the gun through and fires and you see that he can't see what he's shooting he just knows this man's there and then the camera is now from inside the elevator the door opens back up. You see this light flash from the, the gun firing, and you see the blood on Exley's face. That scene was so tense for me, because, like, this little part, little voice in the back of my head was like, what if it wasn't him? Like, what if he killed someone else? And yes. you, it draws for long enough that it really makes you worry, like, what happened there? Yes. And, of course, then the next scene is just, like, everyone applauding him at the police station. Yes. He is visibly shell-shocked and they're just like calling him shotgun and tossing his hair yeah and And it's it's clearly right this sort of loss of innocence in the journey of becoming of breaking that kind of i want to be a good and just cop where it's literally he kills a guy who maybe even in the moment he thought that was the right thing to do but who he ultimately learned was completely framed for this murder and and now we're seeing, and so James Cromwell is the captain. It's almost like he he's almost like training Exley. Like he sees, like he's thrilled that this man who's very smart and driven is turning into a real cop. And by real, I mean like willing to commit crimes and murder. People. And I, I feel like from this point onward, he wears his glasses less, which is probably a point. Like I feel like when he's not wearing his glasses, he's doing something that like, He's probably not... He feels bad about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. It just... Yeah. We get... At one point, I think it actually might have been earlier, but a reporter takes his picture, and he takes off his glasses. It's very intentional, like, and he, like, sticks his chin up to look good. And it's like, he's a little... It's a little bit of that, like, the Kevin Spacey kind of fame hunger or power hunger. Like, you see that he wants... He wants to be the winner. I mean, I feel like... You know, for, you know throughout the whole movie, you learn it more at the end that he is very good at milking the system in his favor. Like he he doesn't want to be a bad cop, but he will do what he has to do to end up where he wants to end up. If that makes yes, sense, yes, which may compromise the morals he has. But exactly. That. I mean, you know, I feel like you you got to get dirty in this business, even if you want to be good. I mean, it's absolutely one of the themes. Is the, the every everyone gets in the mud in the end? Absolutely, man. So and then there's like a little interstitial. I would say it's kind of like we get another um, Danny DeVito talk. 
And it's just like everyone, time is moving on a little bit. We see like a party at Pierce's house and there's two women dancing. So there's like some lesbian stuff. That's where we see Shirley Temple, like on oh, the God. knee of an older game. A very, um, very uh, Joel Grey character, oh. I would say. Happy birthday. And um, then we kind of, we come to the story like it's back. We're back to story and it is Danny DeVito and his friend Kevin Spacey. They're at a party. They're just talking. Danny DeVito's like, I want a hot scoop. And they he brings in um, the guy from the pop bust who's back in the story now. And then they're oh, we didn't talk about them. So briefly, you mentioned broadly that uh, Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey he'll work. Danny DeVito will feed him kind of gossip, and mm-hmm. then Kevin Spacey will set up a bust on a celebrity, like for having this one guy, young actor, who's got smoke in the reefer. And so he sets it up, Danny DeVito's waiting and gets the picture for his garbage rag. And so that's the relationship. Yes. And of course, this gentleman we find out is a a lavender gentleman. Is he a lavender gentleman or he's just going to fuck the DA? I don't know. I mean... I don't know that he is, actually. I think that I mean, gets at his discomfort and need to drink. Like, that's so what, true. What has occurred is... Danny DeVito needs him to fuck the DA so he can take pictures of it. You know, I guess that Because the DA is a gay man. Yes, I guess that would make sense because he does say he's not a a red and he's not a homo. He can't really help me unless he does. Right. And of course he does. Yes. Huh. So it's even more coercive than that. That that man (laughs) now needs to have sex with a man. Gay for pay. Yeah. It existed all the way back then. Oh, it absolutely did. (laughs) And so in this scene, it's got my maybe my biggest laugh of the movie, right? Because Kevin Spacey is the one who arrested this actor. And the actor sees him and he goes, Hey, have we met before? And Spacey just like, just pauses for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) That was good. But it leads to, but he's, and the the actor's kind of like a dumb guy. Like he's presented as sort of an airhead. Yeah. And he thinks, he says, oh, it was at a Fleur de Lis party, wasn't it? So it leads to, it's a lead because these are the secret, are Pierce Patchett's secret parties basically and kevin spacey has already gotten he found a florida lee business card i think i think where i got confused is i thought that florida lee was more of a gay thing like i thought that was like this i think it's like the the hook. i guess you could probably do anything but like i thought it is that yeah. but like i was just imagining it as like more like the gay under underground party scene and that's what i was kind of putting there yeah but i, I guess that's just because kevin spacey i think it, it's pierce patchett's call girl service that plus maybe sense. drugs plus maybe have sex with the da i don't even know <laughs> whatever you want um yeah whatever what is it whatever your heart desires that is, is the tagline that is exactly the tagline uh, where are we? Uh, buh, buh, buh. Let's talk about the about Mrs. Mrs. Lefferts, the mother. Yes. Oh dear God, she is a woman. <laughs> so, in we've all seen police procedurals. Sometimes uh, a a woman dies, and then they interview the mother, and they get a little background, and it's usually very boring. 
It's usually, right? It's just, oh, I didn't know she was in trouble or like she had problems with drugs. And it's like, oh, we found a clue because we found her diary. Great. Moving on. Like if this were law and order, Mm -hmm. no one would remember the mother. In this movie, the mother is perhaps the most memorable character of the whole thing. She reminds me a lot of my grandmother, who is a very, like, um, she talks a lot. She's very, like, she'll repeat a lot of things. She's very, I don't even know, like, I don't know the words to describe her. Like, she's just very, like, what would you, how about you? She, so she's got this, like, deep, goofy voice. Yes. And she looks, she's frazzled. I mean, her daughter's dead, so she's, like, grieving. She looks like one of the Grey Gardens ladies, kind of. Yes. Like, she looks, she's a kind of, like, homely woman, like, the kind of person that probably could not live around L.A. now, because I'm sure that house is now, like, a mansion or something. Yeah, like, she has almost, like, hoarder vibes, or super, like, socially awkward, kind of. And... Like, her mind runs quicker than her mouth all the time. Yeah. And she's just very, of course, because her daughter died, but, like... And she, um, and so Russell Crowe, now that he's uncovered a little bit about Pierce Patchett and about how this woman's daughter was this, uh, escort, was, her hair was dyed to look like someone, and she had said, she had talked about when he first met the mom, that her boy, she didn't like her boyfriend. Like, I haven't seen him. She ran off with her boyfriend. I never liked the guy. And so Russell Crowe goes to this woman's house and he's like, oh, tell me again about her boyfriend. And she said, she says, Munzer, Lunzer, or something. Like, she, that's how she talks. It's like this goofy, kind of like quavering voice. It's hard to describe. But it's, it's very it's memorable. Like, it reminds me of like the the um, like Marge's family in The Simpsons. Yeah, like that kind of like butcher, like very like Dutch German woman, like older, like yes. beaten down, smoked her whole life. Yes, this woman talks like a, a cigarette, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and she's like, he gets. He, Russell Crowe now has found out that Dick's, that his partner, was it his partner? Yes, his was, dead partner was dating this woman. Yeah, daughter. Oh yeah, his partner was killed at the Night Owl. Yes. Presumably just as a patron. And he tried to intervene because he's a good cop. What a hero. And <laughs> so it turns out that that cop is the boyfriend of the, the dead hooker. Essentially. Yes. And that was the one who was bad news, was this cop. So, they... So, Russell Crowe... Then he, like, gets a whiff of something. And like, a, literally. I feel like that is, like, kind of like a cop detail. Like, the fact that he would know what a body smells like, just like that. Like, if he gets a little hit, he knows, like, oh, no, this yes. is that. And she just thinks it's a rat in the walls. Like, she has blocked off the room that's directly over where the body is. Yes. And she, there's this one moment where, at least for me, I thought, is this woman a murderer? I was, it almost seems like she knows it's a body, but maybe she's she not accepting it. She doesn't want to, yeah, she, she knows that they're... There's, is is something that she doesn't rat. want to confront. It is more than a rat. And likely has been, like, you know, 
for protecting her own sanity around her good daughter yeah. doesn't even want to. Seems like she can't mentally face that, oh, I think there might be a body buried under my house. Uh, Russell Crowe finds out that is exactly what it is. And not just any body. <laughs> this is the body of Leland Meeks. Leland Buzz Meeks, the driver of Mr. Pierce from earlier in the film, who is was a notorious corrupt cop, and who we find out was I'd say business partners with uh, Buzz with ex-partner. Russell Crowe's partner running heroin, and in fact that he was killed by Russell Crowe's partner and buried in this woman's under this woman's house. Yes. And, in fact, that leads to another wonderful line where Russell Crowe then goes to interrogate another guy about this, ch- chase down that lead further. And he, first off, that guy. Yeah. Guy, he's like, he's just such a rat. He really, and he's, he's got like, a rat face. And oh. I wrote this down. If somebody who looks like that ever says, quote, I ain't in the snitch business no more. Yeah, okay, They are certainly in the snitch business. (laughs) And so he, the guy, after Russell Crowe, you know, roughs him up to get some info. And by roughs him up, grabs his balls at a bar and is just twisting them. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yep. Give him the old vice grip. And... He says, yeah, Leland Meeks is a, you know, a real bad guy. Oh, a bad guy. And he says, oh, yeah? Maybe that's why he's under a house in Elysian Park and he don't smell too good. <laughs> so good. Uh. So, what we have throughout all this, while we're in this really, like, different threads per- police procedure, one thing I love is that the way... At this point, right, we talked about three cops. We got Ed Exley, Bud White, and Jack Vincennes. How they all have their different motivations, but they all kind of, they lead to the same story. Mm-hmm. And so they end up, like, linking up in different ways. And it's just so, it makes it such a joy to watch in kind of, right? I'm a sucker for a good, like, detective, right? The reveal of the clue or figuring out where the story's going. And they do such a wonderful job of tying, of making them all have their own completely logical motivations, but different motivations, and then ending up along the same lines. Like, these are three guys who don't like each other, right? None of them, like, maybe you can imagine Bud White and Jack Vincennes, like, having a beer, but not close. Like, Jack Vincennes is hanging out with, like... With Hollywood folk. Yeah. And Bud White's more like a, you know, maybe like drinking like, what's that, uh, that 40 of like a Boddington's or something. He's more, he's more that, that caliber. And, but they all do, the the story brings them all together. And I'd say at this point, we find out that um, Jack and Exley team up. They decide they need to do this together. They figure out that night out the night owl case was not solved right. It what they said happened didn't really happen. Um, the the um, homo side also was something obsessed. Yeah, at. which was the hush hush phrasing, I believe. And right around this time, we meet. I'm going to say my favorite character in the movie, who is the um, 
like the the body tech guy who works in the basement <laughs> and he's Please. just so he's such a passive like uh another guy where if this were a shitty episode of law and order there would be nothing interesting about the guy right who did forensics yeah and he's body. like he's the kind of guy he just talks very monotone he's like the clear eyes guy <laughs> he's like he doesn't even look up from his paperwork he'll just be like reading something and being like yeah i'm just pissed off they won't get this stuff out of my way and he just like he gives things that we know are like huge clues but he's just like another day Whatever. another day in the basement yeah he's like and like all the cops visit him at one point or another and he's like yeah the other dude was just down here asking me about this and that yeah and that's how ed exley learns that bud white is also investigating similarly was when the more guy said it, he said i what is what's with you people like i yeah come on cops am i right it's like anything unusual he's like only that you keep people keep bothering me about this body (laughs) so i think might be one of my favorite like parts of this film is when they're so they're together at eggsley jack they're figuring it out and their first thing they're looking for more of these women they're looking for these women to bust for (laughs) like to try to pull someone and get info and they go to this fancy restaurant and he's he goes up to this woman who says, he says, looks like Lana Turner, and he's like, he's grilling her, and this guy is with her, and he's just like... And the guy's involved with Patchett and stuff. Like, they go because of the guy. Yeah. That's who they're trying to get info and on. And the, they tell the guy to get out of here, they want to take her down to the station, and... And not even, like, <laughs> Ed Exley, like, now he, like, tough guy confidence, like, oh, yeah. oh, I killed some people. Like, he just tears into this guy and this woman... And he's like just talking shit, and he's like, just because you, just because you dress a two dollar hooker like Lana Turner doesn't mean it's not a two dollar. And of hooker. course, then Jack butts in and says that is Lana Turner. And <laughs> and <like> what? <laughs> and then she throws her drink in yeah, his face. So it's the real famous actor. It just cuts to them sitting in the car, and he the um, Ed looks really pissed off, and then they both just start laughing. Yeah, that's such a fun like little little upbeat moment before the entire movie takes a nosedive into. Half yeah. of the main character's dying off. We'll, we'll get there. She is Lana Turner. So good. <laughs> um, so, well, before we get into all these wonderful people dying, yeah. let's get some sex. Let's get oh, a love a little, story. A little steamy. Let's get it going. Who's it going to be? Uh, I'm going to say it's our femme fatale. Well, I mean, Bud's been hooking up with the femme fatale. That yeah, just, we that, hadn't covered it yet. But it comes up. It's not a big deal. They have sex. But it, it sort of is. I mean, it is. Like, it is a romance that will be important, but, like, that's a thing that happens a few times. And, like, everyone knows it. It's not really a secret. Yeah, and, well, and the one person who basically can't accept it is Ed Exley. Mm. And it's one part because he's like, all right, that woman's a supermodel. Like, what? what's, what's the catch? Like, how come... He seems like a jealous guy, and a guy who probably does not do well with women. Yeah. And and he thinks, right, he's looking for clues. It's like, wait, she is now, at least tangentially, in the orbit of these murders, and he is a cop who's sleeping with her, and he goes and he grills Patchett, and I love this line, he said, why is she seeing Bud White? And Patchett just goes, why do people usually see one another? <laughs> It's like explaining sex to this adult man. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it does, it's where we get the reveal when they have this very kind of tender pillow talk about where, why he is violently, right, anti-violence towards women. 
is because his father murdered his mother in a domestic abuse incident. And that forged who he is. And you get, you see that they bond over this tenderness that this, like, they both, they both sort of share this almost, this, like, deep sadness inside of them that maybe comes from different places, but feels like they, it connects them. Mm -hmm. Where she, where she is someone who is so, so visually stunning and literally made up to look like a movie star that she, I don't know, I guess it's harder to trace where her kind of world weariness comes from. Um, but it seems to forge their connection. They both have a lot of baggage, I would say. Yes. Yeah, that's probably a, a good way to frame it. So Ed goes and he basically, he talks to her and like this, I you can tell what's going to happen because the soundtrack is just like the heaviest noir fuck scene like instrumental leading up to it and they're just having this back and forth and that is basically like why are you fucking him and she's just like i love him or something such like that and then he she just keeps saying his name and he just says like stop talking about him and then they're, they're like kissing and the first few you could tell it's like him leading and she's just kind of like i don't know if i like this but then it gets very passionate they get going at it and uh um, this of course being lynn brackett and ed exley yes and which what I would say felt like quite a turn. What I would say about this is that like it's definitely like a moment of lust. Like I don't think he's in love with her and like it's definitely not like a thing it's not a jealousy thing that continues to the point that like he wants her, he just he wants her because Bud has her. Yes. And then of course we see none other than a Mr. Danny DeVito is taking photos of this happening. Yes. And, and so he, that I was angry because I'd forgotten that part. Mm-hmm. Because it felt like one, this woman has no reason to be attracted to this man. Like, True. he hasn't done anything attractive. And two, her attraction to his colleague seems very genuine. Yes. And so I was angry. It's like, oh, just kind of slutting her up. But until you, it's all, she is only, it's like this bad seduction on his part. Mm-hmm. But she goes along with it because she's helping Danny DeVito blackmail him. Um, as requested slash required by Pierce Patchett. And that made me, then it's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like you haven't, you didn't botch the story around this character at all. Can I go into something that's kind of like near the end of the film, sort of? Sure. I mean, we're already. This is one scene that I got a little lost on. So... Does she know that Danny DeVito is working for the police captain? Or like Probably he, not. Okay. She knows he's working for Patchett. Okay. Because right after, when Ed actually goes to Patchett, he's like, why is she seeing Bud White? Uh, the first thing Patchett does after he leaves, he picks up the phone and he calls the Sidster, baby. Gotcha. He calls Danny DeVito. Okay. He calls himself the Sidster at one point. So. I, I missed that, but that is fantastic. Oh, it's when early on um, Kevin Spacey calls and he's like, What do you got? You got something juicy for the Sidster? Oh, no. That is the Danny, that is a perfect Danny DeVito yeah. role. Just like that slimy little tabloid man. That's great. Um, so Pierce, Pierce calls, the, Pierce sets up the blackmail. Lynn works for Pierce, so she has to do it. Yes, okay. And that was like yeah. the one little scene where I kind of got fogged and I wasn't sure who yeah. knew what. She I mean, does not 
everyone has different angles there. I do not believe she knows anything about that coming from anyone beyond Pierce, but we gotcha. will, we can get into that briefly. Um, next on my list, let's jump back a little bit to a conversation between Ed Exley and Jack Vincennes, mm-hmm. where Ed Exley says, just like Rolo Tomasi, he says this name. And he's like, well, who's that? And he said, Rolo Tomasi killed my father. But he gives a little more story. His father was killed in the line of duty. The guy was never caught and got, got away with it. Mm-hmm. And Ed Exley, to cope with this in his youth, made up a name. Rolo Tomasi as this, this villain. As this, like, the guy who got away with it. And it sort of motivated him to become a, a cop to pursue justice um so I, I bring that up because it will come come up shortly before we rush into that though yes i think so there are a few more like clues that get found one we get i forget who one of them finds out that first um captain smith james cromwell said that Basically, he didn't. He wasn't close with Leland Meeks or Dick Stetland, who are the two cops who are now they're both dead and implicated in this in different ways. Mm-hmm. And one of them find I think it's Exley finds old records with they were partners and like signed all the stuff together. They were like thick as thieves. So it's like, oh wait, these like. The massive corruption of this cop probably isn't completely separate from his partner, who's now the police captain. And so they, so one in particular, Kevin Spacey, goes to, he shows up at Captain Dudley Smith's house. Okay, this is where I'm at in my notes, too. Yeah, and so he wants more... He basically, he's like, something's amiss. What's going on? And he wants to talk to him because he's like, you know, I need to, I need to let the captain know. He's, he absolutely still sees the captain as an ally. Um, he, he needs to basically let the captain know about all the stuff they found out about Meeks and Stetland and heroin and hookers and like get some answers, figure out like what's going on. And so he's, he comes in, it's nighttime, uh, Captain Smith is surprised to see him there, he, Captain Spacey's clearly kind of stressed and anxious to be there, and he goes in, and the old Irishman makes him, uh, you know, put some tea on the, put some water on the kettle for him, and he's trying and and there's this great shot where he's holding he's holding like the teacup or the coffee cup whatever it is mm-hmm. and his hands shaking i don't know if you caught that oh, i did not but that it's because i knew what was happening so i was like i was eagle-eyed mm-hmm. um but you see his his hand just tremble a little bit and you can see the nerves and uh cromwell has this wonderful line where spacey's trying to dig up this he says don't start trying to do the right thing now, boyo. You're hmm. out of practice. Which is such a good line. 
That is a good thing for a villain to say. I'll give you that. And then, and so then it cuts back to Spacey and he like spills a little coffee, like or burns his finger or something on some hot coffee. And he kind of flinches. And in this moment, it's such a neat scene. um, Cromwell pulls out a pistol and just shoots him point blank. Of course, before this happens, uh, James Cromwell is like, he's just on the stove doing stuff and he says have you told anyone else about oh this? yes 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 he's like and, and as soon as he says no just turns around and pops him off like right in the heart and but he does say like Exley he mentions Exley yeah yeah and maybe Bud White I forget but and so the police captain sweet old babe man kills Kevin Spacey and props to Spacey's acting I chops. was gonna say like I feel like I'm starting to get to the point in just watching movies where, like, I can tell what's good acting. Like, him, his dying. Like, you could, yeah. you could just see, like, how subtly his face relaxes and just fantastic. And I, I so I caught a little bit um, where he talked about the filming of that. And what he did, he had someone draw two, like, paint or, like, with marker, two circles on the wall, like, mm-hmm. back, and he said, like, put him there and there to, like, kind of just give his dead eyes something to stare at. And it's interesting to, to know that there's so much of a process behind just getting that look. And you watch it, and it is, it is haunting yes. and good. And it really, in the moment, you don't see it coming. It's even if you're, like, I don't know about this police captain. Like, you might be there, but you, in this moment, in this, like, quiet cup of tea in a kitchen, you, you're not like, oh, he's about to murder him instantly. Like, maybe that's where it'll lead. Mm-hmm. But no, it just happens then and there. Bam, bam. And, of course, the last thing Kevin Spacey says is Rolo Tomasi because he realizes, like, oh, it's you. You're the person that did this yes. all along. which... I don't know that it was, he, he wasn't saying it, he was saying it to throw a clue. With his dying breath, gives a clue to Ed Exley, a genius clue. And he basically says, Rolo Tomasi. Like, gives him this weird, cryptic name, as if that guy is involved somehow. It's so interesting, like, the next scene is um, James Cromwell the next morning, like, giving the press conference to say, like, he we found his body, it's clear from forensics that he was moved. Like, hearing him talk about this so separately, despite the from fact that the he fact was, that he literally, did he it. did it. It's, yeah, he's, like, you know, giving a presser mourning the tragic death of a, a member of his like, force. The ease at which he did that lets you know, like, this is not the first time. Like, no. he has been in this for years, yes. being the bad, the baddest of the bad cops basically and he um so and right after that right after the press conference he goes up to ed exley said hey you you know anything about uh rollo tomasi and you see another good face shot is guy pierce's face where perhaps if captain smith were more astute would have recognized uh, a, a, a slight but noticeable contortion in his reaction. You see it in his eyes just, like, processing that. Like, what? <laughs> and he said, oh, just a, just a lead. I'm trying to chase down uh, related to Vincennes' murder. And actually, now in this moment, knows exactly that Captain Smith killed him. He is, because he is a, a smart cop. 
Uh, and but he keeps it to himself in this moment. Then okay, so we're like we're getting near no oh, we're getting oh, near the end of it. We're mounting tension here. And then we get um let me see. Okay, so we get Danny DeVito. Yes, we go back to the Victor Motel, which is like where they take people to like kind of beat them up off the record, tell people like yeah. go back to New Jersey, this is the city of angels and you ain't got wings. I thought was a great noir line from That's James Cromwell. So good. But we're at the Victory Hotel. He gets Bud to come, and the person in the beatdown chair is Danny DeVito. Yes. And Danny DeVito has a, another wonderful line here. I could just say the Danny DeVito line. Um, where they're asking, where he asks him, like, what do you know about Jack Vincennes? And he goes, Hollywood Jack? The big V? <laughs> I can tell he's on the night train to the big adios. <laughs> God. That's how it's crazy that people talks. used to talk that way. And he's what you're thinking. We haven't properly described him, but he's what you're thinking, like, 50s flashbulb reporter with the hat. He is, uh And so he is being interrogated. Bud White gets called in to just to rough him up, because that's the job. And... And uh, DeVito starts talking, and he says, he's like, basically reveals, oh, I got pictures of it. I forget exactly how, but it leads to Lynn Brackett. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I got, he's like, I got, I got some blackmail photos. I got, I got, uh, I got photos of the this broad who looks like Veronica Lake banging a cop. And... Bud White almost rips his chair out of the ground. Yes. He does rip the chair rips- out of the ground and like is about to literally kill Danny DeVito. Yes. And so he goes to, he's like, they're in the trunk of my car. So he goes to the trunk of the car. Sure enough, he sees photos of Lynn and Ed Exley having sex. And so before we follow Bud White, who rushes away from the scene, then we, we still have our are Sid Hutchins and James and Dudley Smith. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be it for Danny DeVito. Yeah, I mean, I I think from about halfway through the interrogation, I knew it was a setup. Yeah, oh, and yeah, so, so what's so, revealed is that he, Danny DeVito's going along with it. And he's just on the ground like he's broken character, and he's like, already, get me out of this chair. Like, and you, you should have, why didn't you hold your punches better? Where'd you learn how to act? And it's just this whole thing. Yeah, where they did that just to get Russell Crowe pissed off at Guy Pierce because because the captain knows that Vincennes is working with Exley, and so he needs Bud White to basically kill Ed Exley. And like this is, I think this is where all the setups start to unravel, and you start to really see like who's working for who, yes. who is influencing who, and like this is, I mean, the dominoes start falling. Everyone starts dying off after this point. Yeah, and I mean. To be said, like, Bud was being sent to kill Edsley, essentially. Yeah. And so as... So Danny DeVito's like, all right, uncuff me, get me out of this chair. And then Cromwell just puts on one rubber glove. Just an old Irishman. If you... This is the scariest moment of your life. Just a a tall old Irishman with one black leather glove. And he's putting it on slowly. He covers Danny's mouth and says, hush, hush. Yes, which, of course, is the name of his tabloid. Bud's first stop, 
He goes to see his lady. Sees Lynn. And hits her. And he hits her. such like a character snap. Yeah. And I, I did, I appreciated that they weren't, that they weren't just celebrating his, his clear violence as like, oh, it's just because he's protecting women, which might be how he feels about it. So to like give it this turn where he hits her is like it it feels like it's sort of it's letting you know like oh their violence is violent and it can cause these issues so thematically i did like that um and and it it kills him basically he right he now sees the monster he's become and sort of like as soon as he does it is like in fright and shock at himself for having done it. It's just, like, such pure, like... It's one of the better filmic representations I've seen of, like, seeing red. Just, like, being yes. so angry, you push aside everything you think, know, and believe, and you're just, like, he hits her, and then he goes to the office, and he, like, starts beating the shit out of Ed. And even Ed is, like, he basically says, like, stop, he wants this, you're falling into yes. the trap, we need to fight against this together. And he still, like, hits him, slams the door, and tells people to leave, and then throws a chair out the window. Yes. And then he finally catches That's himself, and he's, like... one of my favorite moments, is he's he's about to beat Exley to death, <laughs> and Exley gives, he's like, no, like, he wants, it was, Captain did it, he killed Jack, he, he's trying to get you and to Ed kill me. And has hit, has... Bud's gun on him while he's saying all this stuff, and Bud still like hits yeah. the gun and does the few things. And so there's there are a oh. few seconds where Bud knows that Exley's right and that he is just has been set up to try to kill him, but he's still doing it because he's still that pissed off, and I love that. And the throwing the chair out the window, like it is a heavy chair, and he throws it a good ten feet towards yeah. a window, and it goes, and like, and it's like his oh. like that was. That was the energy I was going to use to murder you. Yeah. And instead, I'll throw this chair out the window. So then... So now they team up. Yeah. Now that it's like, all right, the chair's gone out the window. <laughs> now we are in. Jack's dead. We got two two of them standing. And, like, they... We learn instantly from their next actions that they are just going all in on this. There, There's no half measures because once you barge into the district attorney of Los Angeles's office grab him <laughs> beat him and give him a swirly you're kind of past the point of no return yeah and uh, that is exactly what they do oh but I, I haven't really said the why there so they now in this bond that the three of them have had Oh, we didn't even talk about how the actor died. Yeah, we Wait, missed who? that. The the man who oh, slept with the DA. Uh, yeah, he they um, Kevin Spacey finds him dead in a hotel room where he was going to meet him. I believe. Yeah, his throat was slit, and they found him with I think like a cheeseburger, beer, and semen in the stomach. That was one of the lines of the yes. medical examiner. Fantastic. Oh uh, yeah, or deadpan medical examiner. <laughs> how's that? So, and he says, "How's that for a last meal?" The kind of the mission, the like personal redemption mission, uh, Jack Vincennes was on was to uncover what happened with this guy's death. No one's looking into it because it's just oh, gay lovers quarrel or whatever. But he knows it runs deeper, and so he asks. He says he tells Exley he'll help him if Exley helps him solve this one, and so now. Vincennes is dead, but they're still 
they still want to solve this one and sort of on his behalf to honor him. And the DA reveals... Oh, they like... Oh, they, they, yeah, you forgot to mention they hung him out a window they and he him. sings. He just... He, yeah. Tells them everything very quickly in, an, yeah. in a life-ending panic. Dangling from by his ankles outside of, like, the district attorney's office building. <sighs> Man. And I don't even remember the details of... What had caught, I mean, like, he basically says that um, James Cromwell and the higher-ups and the police are taking up all of uh, Cohen's rackets that he can't run anymore. And that's why, like, in the very beginning, we see a bunch of Cohen's men being killed off, just, like, by mysterious gunmen in the night. Yes. We see uh, a bunch of heroin getting stolen, who by, yeah. we find out by the drunk cops. cop and uh, Buzz and all that. Yeah, so all the corruption that, like, we've seen kind of occluded references to throughout, like, come together as, like... Uh, the captain, Captain Babe, is a a heroin kingpin. Yes, basically. And from this point, starting with Danny DeVito, he is tying up every loose end with this case. Yes. So, like the very next place they go is to see Pierce, and he killed himself. He's sitting in the chair with slit wrist, but his fingers are broken. He was probably drugged. Like it's very clear this yes. was a setup. Yeah. So Pierce Pierce is dead. Um, then we get. So then we get a a call. So Exley gets a radio gets radioed in, mm-hmm. saying, um, "Exley, uh, Officer Bud White wants to wants you to meet at is it the Victory Motel? Yes, yeah, at the Victory Motel." And it's like they had both kind of split to go their own ways, and now it's like, oh, they're that's where they're going to meet up and. He gets there. It's super. Oh, my favorite L.A. Oh, just this movie has just so much L.A. in it. And in this scene, you see an oil derrick in the background just pumping, which is such an L.A. thing. People, if if you haven't been, you'd be shocked at just how much of this dense urban area is filled with just oil, active oil drilling. If you've ever seen the opening scene of Beverly Hills Cop. You would also see this there. And so there's an oil derrick. It's this kind of seedy, out-of-the-way place. It's desolate. And we get... And then Ed Exley's there. Russell Crowe shows up. First thing he says is like, what's going on? Like, why'd you want to meet here? It's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> they've been set up. They've both been told to go to this place. And immediately, like, they both, the they both, like, hear a car door shut over there, and they see a car pull up, like, in the lower parking lot. And yeah, stuff they like see that. the, like, headlights over the, the hill, and so let's get out of here. He says, it's too late. And buckle up. Did you, like, at this point... Were you, did you think you were about to get one of the coolest fucking shootout scenes of all time? I really, I did. I, I did. knew it was okay. coming, especially because when they go in the hotel room and they like, they lock it down in such a precise, quick, like, yeah. just that, like, this is second nature to them, like, how to block up a room for this yeah. fight, They like so cool. flip a mattress up over And they're, like, talking while they do it, like, the guy, um, Ed Exley is like, my dad died doing something like this, like, just... All this yeah, stuff. And he, he literally, we find out he literally did because James Cromwell is the one who killed his dad. So yeah. it's just like such a next generation continual thing. Yes. 
and they're they're moving furniture to block doorways and they're so they have like this couple minutes of like prep time um we've got and like when i just say this is most badass 90 percent of that is bud white oh yeah it actually sure. ain't doing too much here but bud white does everything and so basically you have this swarm of corrupt cops like descend on them in this ambush mm-hmm. and okay you've got russell crowe he's got a pump shotgun and he so first you have some guys like outside the window he shoots a couple of them he's firing off the pump shotgun pretty pretty standard stuff then but then he runs to the other side and now he's holding he's got the shotgun held in one hand but he needs to reload it so he's firing a pistol out the window while he's holding the shotgun it's like all right that's fucking cool shoots the pistol gets cover loads the shotgun awesome then then it's like the guys are outside they're shooting in Exley takes some shots with a pistol or whatever. Who cares? He's a little, he's a little fucking college boy. And Russell Crowe sees there's like a hole in the floor. Basically, this is like a rundown. Actually, I think that was the hole that he made when he ripped up the chair earlier. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's the oh, same room. Oh, my God. That's even... Oh, my God. Yeah, I love like, that. He kicks yes. it through. He goes in the basement. He's like, he shoots one guy in the legs. What? Which, you gotta... Don't just... That's what him. happens. He bro- blows the hole out, goes got, down there... Nick, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta tickle the balls a little bit. I here. am. He, that is tickling the balls, because then he does other things from the hole. So, yes. Yeah, so he, he like quietly signals to Ed, like jump down this hole, and he goes down there. Then he like roll, does a roll, rolls over on these floorboards. He sees the two guys' legs through like a little basement window, uh-huh. kind of sticking up. And he sees them walk, so he rolls, he's like under the floorboards, he's got like a foot of space, and he rolls over with the shotgun to the next window where they're gonna be, and then shoots their legs. Awesome. I feel like you gotta, you gotta give it the roll. Fair enough. The roll is, and so then, so Exley then finishes the job, he goes out the window and shoots the two who are like maimed, their legs are all fucked up. Mm -hmm. Then some, some guys bust in. And, like, Exley's in a pickle. Or two guys come in, and they're yeah, both... Yeah, like, he, Ed gets shot. He's, like, he's out of ammo. He's yeah. trying to reload his gun with one arm, basically. It's bad news for him. And so two cops come in from different ends. They basically have him cornered. And one of them hears a shotgun Just pump, from the dark hole. And he and looks down and sees the dark hole and just gets blasted from it. Then the other cop looks towards the hole, like, what the fuck? And Russell Crowe now pops out of the hole, blasts that guy. It's so fucking cool. But now, we are down to one gunman. And that gunman is James Cromwell. He kicks in the door, or he comes in the door and he shoots Russell Crowe, which... Shoots him in, like, the cheek. I think he gets him down and then he shoots him while he's on the floor, like, in the head. We don't yeah. really know. He shoots but, like, him in the face. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it is Cromwell versus, I think, then um, Ed grabs the shotgun and has it on Cromwell, and Cromwell just drops his gun, and he's like, he basically says, like, I'm, I'm the politician, let me talk. He's like, I let can, me do I'll the talking. I'll make you captain. He has, yeah, he, 
Cromwell is so pragmatic and just like knows that Exley won't won't kill him, even though now he has the chance, and he's like, "Just let me do the talking. You'll I'll make you captain." And he, he is so. And not, you can at this point, I think you hear the police sirens coming. He, he, they're walking out the front door, and he says, "Hold up your badge. They know you're a cop." Like he is so oh, not such a good line. He is he is so convinced that he has still won. Like even though every everyone is dead except him and Ed. He's convinced, like, oh, I'm still going to win this, obviously. I've done it for so long. And as he's walking away, Ed shoots him right in the back. Shoots him right in the back, which is what he said said he couldn't do. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, so we have just a little epilogue to this tale. He's in the interrogation room. Like, anyone who's left in the upper... LA is on the other end through the window, and of course we see the it's DA like the with scene the bruises in cheers <laughs> outside the door. <sighs> and like, I mean, we know that we know what happened essentially. And Ed, he basically retells everything. This is who killed who. This is who was running drugs. This yeah. is what. And happened. like the cops that are left, like some they're they're like in shambles. That he's gonna that he's spilling all this. Oh, the DA is like the the press will have a field day with this. This will be a stain on the department for decades. Yeah, and and so they so then we get this moment where all the DA and Co are all on outside the interrogation room talking. They're like, "What if?" Right. Well, what if we could convince? What if we could spin it? Like, we'll make him the hero. Like, what if we? Basically bury, bury all the details because he's just telling cops this. He hasn't told reporters this yeah. yet. It's like, what if we make him a hero? And Exley, like, I think he uses that little under the table thing to he, talk to them. And I think he was listening with that too. No, he was, that's the thing. He wasn't listening. Okay. He says... You're going to need more than one He hero. says, a hero. And they're like, how the, was he listening? Like, how was it? And it's like, no, he just is thinking the same exact thing you are because he's still an opportunist. And he says, in a situation like this, you'll need more than one. And so he's basically um, gets... He's going to be the hero. James Cromwell will have died a hero's death in the line of duty. All this police corruption will get swept under the rug, which Exley is okay with because he was, wants to climb the ladder. True. And I mean, in a way, like, at least he knows what happened. He knows the truth. Yes. And he essentially fixed it on his own terms. He killed yeah. anyone who was involved in the end. Right. But which, he still... But does that make it... Does that just put him on the fast track to becoming James Cromwell? Exactly. And I think it might. And so then we get a final coda here. And that is... uh, We see Ed talking with Lynn. Bracket. Yes. And they're talking... And it's almost you might think for a second that they're together. And it's sort of like, okay, so Russell Crowe died and then he swooped in... But even so, it's like this guy, he's still nothing special to her. It, like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair. It, yeah. it makes me mad that that would happen. And, but it is revealed that that is not the case. Oh, and she says she has this wonderful line. Cause now he's like, 
the celebrities, king of the world. This is I now mean, after the Zogon. He's public. on the fast track to lead the police department, essentially. Yes. Especially because there's no and one he's, left. And he's like a celebrity. For True. He just won the, the highest honor twice in like a year, essentially. Yes. And she says to him, some men get the world. Others get ex-hookers and a trip to Arizona. <laughs> and it's revealed that Bud White is, in fact, very much alive. He's a little beat up. He's got, like, his arm in a sling, his face bandaged up. Um, and she drives off with him to Arizona, presumably. Yeah. And then in, in that moment, the, the final, do you remember what the final, like, shot is right when as they drive off i mean doesn't it just pull out from exley like standing on the the um police station steps and it kind of like just pulls out you see like the city and you know what he does what does he do he looks down and it's this moment where he is now now seeing right would he he's gotten the world He's gotten everything he's wanted and fought for and worked for. But he's looking down and in this moment, he might recognize that, well, maybe he'd rather be with the ex-hooker in Arizona. Right? Maybe, maybe he has won nothing. And it's great. It's so fucking good. Man. Ugh. And if you stuck it out and you haven't seen that movie yet and you're like, well, it sounds good, but now I know everything about it. Fucking watch it anyway. Go. This movie should have won Best Picture. It's so, so good. It is a blast. It is fun. It is funny. It is perfectly executed in so many ways. Man. This movie really just plays with the idea of justice. Like, I kept thinking near the end about, like, the the quote from one of the Batman movies, you die a hero where you live long enough to see yourself become a villain, where in this... He, so many people die as villains, yet they're still heroes. Like, yeah, and like with Ed, like it, I feel like it could go either way. Like maybe he'll become evil, maybe he'll try to up, uphold his beliefs, and like now that he has the power to be a better cop. But like you, you don't know. And he, he I don't. Th- I think he's doomed. Yeah. Right. Like, and we know. Right. This is 1997. Mm-hmm. Was when this was made, and the book was written in 1990. It's based off of a James Elmore book. And, which is probably great. Probably. And it's, right, it's at a time when LAPD, just a few years before, had Rodney King riots, right? They, we've seen, these are not historical themes. We know this watching today. These are police corruption, right? Like racial injustice, framing minorities, all of these things that are, still completely real i think one thing that suggests to me is like the perpetual nature of it right that exley might and he says to russell crowe in that last scene he says like basically says why'd you do it like why why'd you why'd you let him cover it up and he says something like i um oh they're using me so yeah. for a while, I'm using them. And it's sort of like, don't worry, I have plans to take them all down. And it's just not, like, I don't think that's going to happen, right? Yeah. I think he, I think that's how corruption happens, right? I mean, Who's to say that Cromwell wasn't, right, the 
the bright-eyed justice warrior when he first joined the force or anything else. I feel like, you know, he's not going to become a heroin kingpin, but, like, he's going to find his own form of corruption and fall yes. into it. Because it gets so much easier the more power you have, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Especially no, he's going to have times. weird sex fetish stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. That was a good movie, Max. I'm glad you liked two, it. Two good birthday movies in a row. Yeah. My word. Yeah. What a gentleman. Whew. Right? That was heavy. Yeah. It's got a lot of layers. Oh. And I didn't even, man, I could keep going for oh, another I, hour on that, the LA themes. I mean, we're going to be talking about this for weeks, I imagine. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just <laughs> You're going to call me more. late at night. <laughs> Remember when Kevin Spacey did that? <laughs> Oh, boy. I don't even know what to do now. So, yep. oh, how was Laura Dern in that movie? Um, she, well, she was played by James Cromwell. Whoa. Yeah, huh. so Laura Dern, as, God, they're the same height. Could so you that's... imagine if Laura Dern played James Cromwell's character? That would have been so dope. <laughs> she was the, the, the lady, police, p- lady police chief. I want to see Laura Dern kill Danny DeVito in a movie. I want to see Laura Dern, uh, have a tabloid, a Hollywood tabloid, and be Danny DeVito in the movie. Gee, oh, that would have been cool. Like a head of hopper, lady, smut rag writer. Hell yeah. <sighs> chills, I have chills. She's so tall and powerful. <sighs> what now, man? What do we do? I don't know. I don't know, man. Is there anything between your derns you want to talk about? Or was this... No, I've been working on stuff. Nothing I have... What is between them? I don't know. What do you got? Um, well, I finally finished watching all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And, uh, don't watch the new one. It's from 2010. It's bad. Heard it here first, folks. It's real bad. Uh, it's bad. What's his name in it? No. What's his name? Dead? He is still alive. He did not come back to play Freddy in that one. And, uh, it's bad. The guy that plays him is bad. Robert England? Robert England, indeed. With a U. It's just... It's not good. They kind of mess with the dimensions of the whole Freddy thing in, uh... It's bad. Okay. It's bad. Uh, I'm st- I'm getting into the later Saw films, and uh, they're pretty upsetting. <laughs> like, I feel like the casual violence was kind of fun in the first few, yeah. and then, like, once you start to get into, like, having to watch a man murder six of his co-workers, or, like, four of his co-workers to save two of them, like, with a gun, it's, you know. Oh, they just give him the old it's trolley gr- problem? Yeah, it's kind of grim. <laughs> That's You start fun. to see, like, huh. Maybe these are bad. Which one is that? I think that was six. And, like, the whole... I started where do, to... Where do they work? Uh, they work for an insurance company, and the whole, uh, yep, de- the yep, whole deal is... They to die. Yeah, I mean, the whole deal is that, like, they specifically are, are a company that, like, drops people right when they're getting sick, and, like, has, like, a life equation right. to figure out who to cover and who not to. I mean, the whole... Yeah, it's the violence of capitalism. The whole of the Saw franchise is just, like, anti-medical establishment. Which I get, but, like, to a point that it's, like, sometimes they just, like, kidnap a doctor and, like, make her do awful stuff. And, like, their justification is, like, you're not a good, you're not good to your family, but you try too hard to be a doctor. Do you feel like the the Saw franchise has uh, benefited the anti-vax movement? It's sort of a a rallying cry Uh, for them? They all wear the jigsaw masks? I... I can <laughs> you know, little tricycles. Oh my God. I don't think that much, but you know, it's it's interesting to think about. Like so many movies where like the villain is some greater thing, and in Saw it's just like medicine. 
<laughs> is it really? Kind of. I yeah. mean, if... that's some that's some Unabomber shit right there. Yeah, I mean, like the in the original film, one of the guys is a doctor, like the guy that cuts his leg off and lives. And I I feel from there it just grows and grows and grows to be like so like anti doctors and anti. Yeah, I, mean, it I does, guess if it's anti, right, the modern healthcare system. It does. It's, it's anti-insurance, the sixth health one, insurance. The sixth one deals heavily with, like, health insurance and, like, the evils of it. But, like, I feel like it's just, it gets so... I feel like there's there's some art in the first, like, two or three movies. And it's, like, subtle and, like, the ideas that's behind it. Like, everyone has a chance to live. It's, like, your will to want to live and all that. Right. All that jazz that horror movie people talk about. But as it goes on, it just gets to be, like, torture porn and, like heavy-handed metaphors and like ha- every movie has more flashbacks than the previous movie like the sixth one is literally half flashbacks Blah. like i feel like for every saw movie they film with that movie they film half of another movie that they put in the next movie i feel like there's another one coming out this year oh they're all flashbacks from like what you didn't see exactly and some of five. them are ones that you do see in the movie and then like it's the expanded scene like the rest of it like that you didn't see earlier which is this super cool it is cool but like narrative device it builds up so like yeah just but if it's just it. like and I know they're making a new one now. It's going to have Chris Rock in it. I think it's coming out later this year. And, like, I know it's different, so it's not going to be in that powerhouse of back, back um, flashbacks, rather. Right. But I just have this little bar to me, like, what if it's all flashbacks? What if there's nothing original? It's just every character is played by Chris Rock. It's just now. re-edited, and they throw Chris Rock in here and there, like, uncovering <laughs> clues. Oh, it'd be so bad. But, yeah, that's pretty. I read a Charles Bukowski poem book. That was fun. Yeah, that's some, that's some cult. That's some real culture. Let's get away from the horror. Yeah, let's talk Bukowski. Like we're yeah, sixteen. It was cool. Yeah, what's he doing? Get drunk and hate himself. Yeah, pretty much. Cool I mean, it was man. Just poems, you know, talking about ladies and yeah. firehouses and drinking. Let's chase Quim and hate ourselves. Oh yeah, baby. The way it ought to be. I mean, man. Yeah, I feel like I haven't been doing much. Been relaxing. Had a yard sale. Trying to find a big boy job, working at my little boy jobs in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone, if any of our listeners know how to fix the um, talk box from a 1979 Sesame Street Oscar the Grouch stuffed animal, the pull string, right, the the Woody style toy. We have operators standing by, just call the number in the bio and you can give us some info. I'm I'm desperate for assistance. <laughs> oh, I'm getting my getting my jab on Tuesday. That's exciting. Hell yeah! Getting the Pfizer jab, as they call it in England. <laughs> Did you know that's like they call the vaccines jabs? I so like, like then they call it by name. So you you get the Moderna jab, the Johnson and Johnson jab instead of shot. They yeah. say jab. And it's like the Pfizer jab. That's so much. Yeah, pip, I got I, I got jabbed up the other day. Oh, I yeah. will say you're, you're fully vaccinated now. I am. You, you can go I out am. there and kiss the homies. I, I, it's all I do. It's all you do now. Except last night because I was so fatigued. Oh. Fatigue was real. That'll happen. I felt like did like did the first that. one hit you at all, or was it the no. second one? No, mm. it's not number two. I'm, I'm getting my second one two days before my birthday, so hopefully I work through all that. Yeah, I think I'm fine now. Now I'm two yeah, days out. And that's fair. I, I slept a lot, and I feel good. I've heard, like, about 12 hours after the second one is when it really hits you. And then usually if you, like, sleep, you'll be fine the next day. Yeah, I drank, which is why I think I just uh, delayed that, and yeah. then it, like, hit me like a freight train. That'll do it, buddy. Only thing I I'm could feel it go from hangover to vaccine fatigue. <laughs> 
I'm getting my uh, I'm getting mine out of CVS, so I'm gonna pick up some Gatorade and snacks on my way out. Yeah, go home. Chill some out. of those gummy bears, mm, you know the ones. Haribo. Hmm, <laughs> heroin. Haribo. Mm, what are we watching? Oh man, so huh, I feel like we take such long breaks these days between episodes, and we've been doing special episodes that like it's been it's been probably four weeks since I've said. This is what you're watching. This is what I'm watching. I'm excited. You're going to be watching the movie Wild. Wild. Yes, it's the movie about the a woman going on a large, like cross cross mountain hiking trip. Is this the Cheryl Strayed story? I believe so. so. Who and what yes. Cheryl and Strayed I, is? I think Laura Dern plays a uh, mental health professional in it. Not a hundred percent. She might play a mom. Maybe both. I didn't really do the digging just because yep. I have like a background knowledge of this movie, but. Ooh, it's Nick Hornby's screenplay. Ooh, interesting. You may know from High Fidelity about oh. a boy. Big fan of High Fidelity. Uh, it is, in fact, the story of Cheryl Strait, who wrote a 2012 memoir called Wild from Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, and it stars Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. as Cheryl Strait. Alongside Laura Dern as her mother. That's it. I couldn't remember. And Gabby Hoffman's in it. Oh, Nice. And Michelle Huisman. One of them hot dudes from Game of Thrones. (laughs) One of the two hot Dario Naharises. And he was in Haunting of Hill House. I do love it. So I'm looking forward to it. I didn't realize. So this was pre Jig Little Lie. True. So this is the. So this is their first. I didn't realize. I knew they've developed a rapport, a friendship. I assumed it started with Big Little Lies, but this was three years prior. God, their mage cute happened on the wild set. Yeah. And I, oh me. What do you get? Me, oh You're my. very excited. I will be watching an episode of Frasier, where Lord, <laughs> I'm so excited. I believe. I believe it's so glad I don't have to watch Laura Dern and Kelsey Grammer. Of course, have a relationship in this episode, so I am excited. Ooh, I'm excited fun. to see one of my favorite um, radio psychiatrists dating one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm excited. In the nice. <sighs> Maybe I'll just go back and watch the whole series again. Yeah, for context. In the, in the in the week coming. Yeah, if anyone could do it. If anyone can come weekly, it's me. <laughs> Oh, well, that was well. I guess we're oof, done. Oof. Well, better shut her down. Happy birthday, Max. Thank- oh, shit, we weren't recording.